one thing about entrepreneurship is it can be very lonely. I think community has been a superpower in all of my work. Community stroke collaboration. A lot of people at the bottom compete, and a lot of people at the top collaborate. I have become a really big fan over the years of treating your customers as a community. If you think of them just as a transaction data point, a lot of time you're just gonna be trying to grow, 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 and you're gonna just forget about certain people's special moments that you can just do to kind of make them super fans or super loyal. I was always trying to figure out really fun ways that me and my friends could, rather than just hang out and game, how can we flip? That led to a career of me spending my teens from 12 to 18, building a lot of different things. One really stuck, stood out and that was a Tuck Shop franchise, which I started initially as a shop in a school playground. Me and eight friends, and then I franchised to two other schools and then went to 100 schools by the time I was 18. Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. And on this episode, I'm blessed to be joined by the one and only BJ Malunga, MBE. BJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, for those who don't know you, give us 30 seconds about who you are and what you're doing. I am a creative entrepreneur, London born and bred. I work across media currently, but previously I've had businesses in marketing, retail and education. Okay, amazing. And from everything I've heard, you started off into entrepreneurialism from a super young age. Yeah. How did you land into that? Was that something you always had in terms of spirit? Is it something you saw others do and wanted to emulate? What does it look like? I think um, the starting point for me was, you know, YouTube was alive when I was 10 years old. Mm -hmm. So content and seeing success, even if it wasn't in my neighborhood and with my parents, it was something that I was used to and I was watching a lot because I was the kind of kid who would watch documentaries. I'd watch stories of how record labels and how different product businesses were built in the 80s and 90s. So seeing stories of Richard Branson, Peter Jones, um, American entrepreneurs, people that look like me, people that are Asian, South American. So as a 12, 13, 14 year old, I was asking myself questions like, oh, okay, I can't have a paper round in Brick Lane, but can I start a tuck shop? Can I start a lottery business? Can we do a printing business? I was always trying to figure out really fun ways that me and my friends could, rather than just hang out and game, because mm -hmm. I didn't really like gaming anymore, how can we flip? Um, so that led to a career of me spending my teens from 12 to 18, building a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. One really stuck, stood out, and that was a tuck shop franchise, which I started initially as a shop in a school playground, me and eight friends, and then I franchised to two other schools and then went to 100 schools by the time I was 18. Wow. Um, but whilst I was on that journey, I was testing everything. So I did talent shows and we created our own merch for the artists and helped them press their CDs. Tickets to show were two pounds. So we're mm. not talking O2 Arena money here, but we're literally seeing light bulb moments happen for us mm. where we're like, oh, we have this idea, boom. Um, this is working. Um, there's also things that didn't work. I wanted to create a full-on clothing business because I, I found I could sell merch at my events. And I just never, it never hit the ground running. The amount of all, minimum orders you needed for SKUs at the time, it just wasn't what it is today in terms of dropshipping or print-on-demand, for example. Um, so that's how, that's how I got started in my entrepreneurship land. I interned at a youth marketing agency. I did some uh, work at magazines. Um, I was the kind of kid who spent a lot of my weekends trying to find interesting things to learn, interesting ways to earn, and 
just cool ways to kind of like navigate new parts of the city that I hadn't been able to go to yet. So you'll often find me in Camden, Labbott Grove, Brixton. Um, I even distributed magazines at one point. So I've had all kinds of all kinds of jobs and um, I wouldn't change it for the world. Wow, wow, it's incredible. Because I speak to a lot of entrepreneurs who their first start is, you know, they used to sell sweets in the schoolyard, but yeah. actually building it into a franchise and putting it out to 100 schools is incredible. Yeah. And uh, I mean, at that age, being able to get that sort of distribution and collaborate with others and put together deals, I mean, surely could you tell at that time that like, okay, this is already, you know, you're already on a path, on a trajectory, which is different to many others. Because a lot of people have the idea of, you know, I'm bored at school, I want to do something on the side to make money, but very few people will take it to that level. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I, I just kept watching really cool shows of people doing cool things. And hindsight is one of the most beautiful things because you can be like, oh, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. But at the time, I just was that annoying person to ask why and why not and would inspire people to just go and try something. That was always my kind of vibe. But in hindsight, I think I definitely benefited from having shows like Dragon's Den, mm -hmm. Apprentice, um, Grand Design, just these all these really, really great dope shows at the time that were really well produced and winning awards be part of the furniture of mm. what I watched and then going on YouTube and watching backstories. So my 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 mindset around what could and couldn't be done was probably programmed by accident, but yeah. very much intentionally by myself through the content I watch. So when it came to creating ideas or partnering with people or collaborating, it just felt natural. Mm. Um because I, I, I was like I've seen it I'm just watching this being done every day. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And is that part of your drive then to create content, educating others? Because you're right, if you go down the rabbit hole yeah. in the wrong way at a young age with content, you could end up in all sorts of places. Absolutely. You pick the right lane to go down. Yeah, I know, definitely one of my aims. So right now I, I, I kind of do two big things in media, or big in my world, in my bubble, we're all living in a vortex. Um, on one hand, I, I run a media charity and we teach a thousand teenagers every year how to spot misinformation and also how to train as local news journalists to tell stories and have their voice matter. And on the other side, I have a production business called Blocks of Bags um, or B2B and we basically create podcasts, create shows, live events, immersive experiences where creators, entrepreneurs and investors can all connect, learn from each other um, and hopefully do deals. Um, and I suppose that question you've just asked around um, does that inspire the content I do today? Absolutely does. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just so natural to think of storytelling as a way to connect with different age groups, different demographics and different groups of people. Um, it's definitely been the fabric of all of the businesses I've had over the last what, 14, 15 years now. Mm. And in terms of you know going down educational route with some of those businesses, uh, obviously education and you know making money don't always go hand in hand. Was there ever a you know, a social element there to say, well, actually, yes, maybe going down an education route wouldn't be going, you know, the same route as going down like a finance route or something like that, but it was something important to you. Yeah, I think um, going on the educational route wasn't something I did intentionally. Mm -hmm. It's something that I started to do intentionally after a while, but it wasn't the initial vision. Mm -hmm. The initial vision, I just saw a gap in the market. I was like, entrepreneurship education is boring. Let's do more practical-based learning. Let's create tuck shops. Let's create retail environments. So, but by the very nature of trying to do that, you need to understand the learning outcomes, right. why people are joining in, and you spend time understanding pedagogy and speaking to people who basically create curriculums mm -hmm. and understand what people are gonna get 
for tapping into different elements of what you're putting out there. So I'm someone, and I'm sure same with you, um, as you're building a business, you figure out what you need to do to get to where you need to get to. Mm -hmm. And if there's something you don't know, you either learn it or you bring an expert in. Mm -hmm. So it was a mixture of both. And through doing that, education just became such a, a key part of the businesses I've created over the years. Um, I feel like it's one of the tools that enables people to fast track and also enable themselves to elevate their pro their projection mm -hmm. on where they could be in life. Yeah, 100%. And I think uh, from everything you've said, you know, that genuinely can change the world because you have people going down a rabbit hole online, right? That's just a given now, regardless of, of where that's, that's pointing, but you're gonna be going down a rabbit hole. It's the way the algorithm works. So creating things that are gonna help people raise their own levels of ambition, their levels of understanding, and their outcomes through that, um, you know, has such a massive impact on that side of things. And for sure, it's one of the things I hope with Connected in terms of helping make that education around raising money and what does it mean to speak to investors and making that really accessible, again, can, you know, change lots of outcomes. You mentioned something before, um, training people to spot misinformation. Uh, I don't think there could be anything more important mm. right now, uh, especially at a young age. What does that look like? How do you how do you train people that? Because yeah. I think it's a, such an important thing, especially with everything going on in the world right now. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different ways people can teach it. You can have a lecture from an individual. You can create something immersive, or you can gamify it. Mm -hmm. um, I've chosen to go down the immersive route with my team. So there's a charity called the Student View that I run, and at the Student View we create pop-up newsrooms. So we turn the classroom into a newsroom. We bring journalists in, we you know, scrap all the textbooks they have and bring mm -hmm. notepads and utilize different tools and computers. Um, and we teach a group of young people, normally a group of a size of 20, mm -hmm. sometimes 30, sometimes 10, um, per lead trainer. And we can, we can deliver to 300 people at one time, no problem. Um, but over a three hour period, we basically get them to do a set of scenarios. So there's like a kind of like, Scrabble type game we've created that people mm -hmm. can quiz themselves on. Then there's like a another rendition of kind of a, like trying to spot what what you can see currently in big bits of press, mm -hmm. and then we get them to create. So we give nice. them a chance to kind of pair up and make a piece of information. So the Freedom of Information Act means that you it's very easy for people to go and get data mm -hmm. on things. So we give them access to a set of tools that they can go and then create an article on. Um, so that's what we used to do, and we've done that for really well, and that's one of the ways we teach people how to spot misinformation. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other way we do it is um, we currently teach teachers through these kind of like one hour different type seminars so that they can go and teach students across the country we're finding actually if you're able to train the trainer the people that are in the classrooms every day you're able to increase your reach yeah so now we're on a journey of like actually how do we impact 100,000 kids a year amazing and with everything going on in the world right now and the TikTokification of mm -hmm. all content where things are coming without context right you see a 30 second clip a 60 second clip and it could be from a podcast it could be from you know a, a news outlet like whatever it might be it's so difficult now I, I see the same clips and I see it, you know, repurposed across different channels and I see different contexts attributed to that clip. Yeah. One channel will be like, you know, in a conversation about this, this person said X. Same clip, different channel. Actually, they've given a totally different context. And I think with um, increasing deep fakes and just the way that technology is heading, 
does that scare you? Do you think there are going to be still ways for us to retain a way of being able to understand what's real and what's not? How do you see that landscape? I just see there being more rules being brought in. I think uh, GDPR, for example, was brought in to help protect consumers' data. And um, I think the amount of scenarios of things that have happened because of COVID, pandemic, now, you know, big pieces of war happening and also certain influences pushing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, there's going to be regulations brought in and also with the rise of AI. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's a couple of societal things happening couple of tech things happening and I believe um, there's a now an EU law passing around how they're going to be kind of yeah. putting metrics around AI and then you're going to start seeing US law then you're going to get international law so I think there's going to be some jurisdictions coming in place in the next 12 months the question then becomes who becomes a custodian A to enforce it and B to spot it um, because you're still going to have leaks of things coming out and um, the internet is, is as we've all learned, it's not really a, it's not really a place you can always control. Mm -hmm. But people obviously do leverage and put stuff, the power back on the social media platforms and these tech providers to kind of have accountability mm -hmm. on it. So, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the African proverb: "It takes a child to raise, it takes a village to raise a child." Um, and I take that analogy also with the the rise of deep fakes and misinformation. It's going to take all of us. Mm -hmm. So the entrepreneurs, the thought leaders the tech platforms, government, we have to all work together. Um, I, I can't pin it on one side yeah. at all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're you're right. The only way that we can get our heads around this is for everyone to collaborate on that side. You just think there are so many bad actors who want to utilize these tools for their own ends who will never, you know, collaborate. And often, actually, the people we collaborate with, they've got, you know, two agendas. Maybe there's the agenda being put forward and then there's actually how they use these tools for their yeah. own benefit as well. So it's a tough one. And I, and I think as well, when I look at, you know, conversations like this happening around crypto a couple of years ago with so many people losing their money, like lots of, of, you know, retail investors losing a ton of cash and then us having the same conversations about regulation, we got nowhere near with that in any meaningful way. Yeah, but this is being fast-tracked. <laughs> this is being fast-tracked, exactly. But I think the complexity of AI versus crypto, if we couldn't even regulate crypto properly, mm. how are we going to regulate AI? But I, I also think I see so much, and speaking to so many entrepreneurs recently, entrepreneurs like yourself, um, this whole tech for good wave, which has been going on for a long time, but I almost feel like there's a bit of a race going on between how we use this technology to solve or at least help us solve some of the world's biggest problems versus this technology being the end of us, right? And um, I'll, I'll stay on the optimistic camp for now. Yeah, no, we have to stay optimistic. Um, I think I'm a big fan of like, be the change you wanna see. Mm -hmm. And um, as long as I impact one person's life every day or every week, I've done my bit and then help other people to impact another person and then we become a force for good. Mm -hmm. So tech for good as a, as a mantra, as a way of life, it is, it's very important. Um, I think even the business you run, um, even if you don't label it or think of it as step for good, I see it as step for good because mm -hmm. it's, it's the amount of people whose lives are changing and the families are benefiting through people being able to advance their business or make better investments. It's force of good. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And like we, um, I was telling someone the other day, you know, we had this one business um, which founder who had a normal job and then he was on like a really interesting path corporate path I guess 
and then got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis wow. and had to you know, quit his job and he had back a year before the impacts of, of MS really kicked in. So he went traveling around the world. And when he went traveling around the world, he realized that it would be impossible for him to travel in that way once the effects kicked in. So he then built a business helping differently able people have these incredible travel experiences. And it's a really great business, but doing so much good, like the testimonials that company has in terms of, you know, this um, severely disabled woman saying she can go paragliding in Tenerife with this company with more dignity than going shopping at a local Morrison's. Yeah. Right. And they came on the platform, they raised like 1.8 mil through us and like flying now, helping so many people. So 100%, like I see that uh, although we're not necessarily having direct impact, we can facilitate people doing amazing things in that way. But I think it's to your point as well, it's like teaching the teachers, right? It's actually saying, how can you maximize that impact um, and not necessarily just focus on one element of impact, but try to, to spread that web in that way? Yeah, absolutely. You need champions, advocates, yeah. community. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. So on community, um, obviously, blocks the bags. Really, really interesting. Thank you for having me on the podcast recently, and um, link here. See if we, <laughs> we see if we can get that to work. Um, so t- you've run lots of events. You've got lots of community building going on. You've mentioned uh, just before we started filming about working more with the international community. How does community play a role in B two B, and what does it all look like? Yeah, so I think um, I think community has been a superpower in all of my work. Um, community stroke collaboration. I think a lot of people at the bottom compete, and a lot of people at the top collaborate. The fact that you know our iPhones that we have on our screens, like Samsung provide the screens mm-hmm. to Apple for it, and you wouldn't even think it if you're just a general partner. Or the fact that, you know, some some of your biggest and favorite businesses actually behind the scenes. So for example, up in Coventry, the big uh, manufacturing businesses like McLaren mm-hmm. and a few other businesses enable other local businesses to produce stuff in their factories. There's just loads of little interesting things you just don't think about when, it, when you think of the word collaboration mm-hmm. or community but I think it's a staple in business just the very nature of you having a client if you're a service business is a collaboration and um, I have become a really big fan over the years of treating your customers as a community because if you think of them just as a transaction data point a lot of time you're just going to be trying to grow 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 and you're going to just forget about certain people's special moments that you can just do to kind of make them super fans Mm -hmm. or super loyal. Um, So community for me, uh, when I think of Blocks of Bags and I think of our business um, that we're building is one thing that enables us to, A, have more reach because we're collaborating with people and bringing people on this journey of having pitch nights and having networking brunches. But it's also an opportunity for us to enable other people to hit their goals and targets. So through live events we've done this year, we've seen people hire people through the network. We've seen people get investment. We've seen people um, also kind of like form alliances together and drop products and projects together. So community for me is kind of the way we do business. Mm -hmm. And we kind of like the other two parts of the business is content and live events, but the community sits at the middle and is at the core of everything. Um, The other thing I think about a lot when I think of community is the fact that, again, this is like post-COVID, right? Now, there's like so many different ways to track your community. Mm -hmm. Like, do you build your own platform? Do you build it on WhatsApp? Do you build it on Slack? Do you go Discord? Do you make it just like a, a, a 
people who know who know basis. So it's like relationship, more members club vibes. And I, I think there isn't one answer, but the approach that we're taking is kind of like finding different pockets of communities and enabling people to really find what works for them. So mm. there's a WhatsApp community for those who engage on that level. Then there's a newsletter which is linked to the live event community and there people here on that but we don't really push it on the whatsapp you have to be tapped into the newsletter mm -hmm. or come to a live event to kind of get that flow of work um and then there's a community of sponsors and partners that you work with so for a couple of years i've run a, a private newsletter called private 100 which mm -hmm. i started with like 100 clients that had paid me over the years and then i've just over time added more people on there and there's my writing back my give back to executives who are looking for interesting things. And sometimes I'm not even talking about what I'm up to. I might just be highlighting four businesses that I think are really interesting or three things I've read recently or a really interesting city I'm discovering at the moment. So community can kind of take shape in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, there are some fascinating ways to kind of go deep with your community, in my opinion. Wow, that's um, super informative. Thank you for that, because I've not actually heard anyone really talk about community in that way. And that uh, makes a ton of sense to me. And international community as well, something I know you guys have run events internationally. We were just talking about that before. You're looking you know, really cross-border when you think about community. How does that come in? Does that change the way that you build community at all? Uh, yeah, it definitely does change the way you build community. I think um, you're going to have to understand the nuances and complexities of different languages and different markets. I think um, probably for the next two years, well, our focus is going to have to be more English-speaking uh, countries just to be accessible to people that were around mm -hmm. or if we are going to collaborate and do stuff in another market where English is, is not widely spoken it's about finding the right champions to work with so that you're getting the right tonality mm -hmm. I think tonality is so important alongside empathy when you're doing any work um, especially when it's in real life with people because um, you don't have the, the beauty of a translator 24-7 mm -hmm. so um, the way that we approach community is through co-hosting so we collaborate and get people to have their own ways to be celebrated throughout the moment um, so if we're putting on together for example a networking thing for people in marketing um, it won't just be me and Seb and my, my team it will be us and maybe like four other people who yeah. are also going to bring their communities and I think there's magic in actually bringing different groups of people together um, in that way. So when we go abroad, um, we always look for people that we want to work with. And there's often opportunities for you to kind of think strategically about how you go abroad. Mm -hmm. So the way that we're doing it at the moment, and I think a lot of interesting people are doing it this way as well, is kind of finding fringe events connected to major events happening. So if you look at a calendar in the year, there are a couple of things not a couple there are a lot of things that happen in a lot of different cities around the world and you have to just like beeline into industries you want so for example a big industry for me is advertising and marketing world so can lines is a really big thing for us if you're into politics or if you're into like stuff that's going to change government cop 28 and davos might be important to you mm -hmm. um if you're in tech south by southwest might be important to you but also conferences like slash and web summit so finding those pockets of bigger communities where tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people are going to descend on a city and then finding smart and impactful ways to collaborate. So this year, for example, um, before we go into 2024, um, depending on when you're watching this, um, we um, we did uh, Money 2020 mm -hmm. Amsterdam. So a really massive um, moment for people in fintech, both investors. When, when was that? 
in June. In June, okay. Yeah, so June. Um, so we went out there, we hosted a couple of panels, mm. moderated, um, and then we started hosting dinners for like really fast-growing businesses with really interesting people. Um, so you can find real interesting ways to kind of like add flavor to things happening mm. in different cities where you don't need to build all the infrastructure yourself. Obviously, if you've got the capital and you... You know, you've got the billion pound spend or a hundred mil to put behind lots of stuff, then you might be able to afford to go, you know what, we're going to just spend half a million or spend a million sure. on making a moment for everyone to come down. But um, it's not always as simple to create galas or create your own festival vibes. Yeah. But when I have looked at doing festivals, a lot of the stuff I like to do is home turf yeah, here yeah. in the UK um, because you've got suppliers, you've got relationships, you're able to barter. Um, but maybe, maybe sometime soon, I think it might be time to start looking at building some sort of a festival type experience in a different continent because I've done a couple here in the UK and it's been fun mm -hmm. um, but I think it should be a bit more fun abroad yeah. but who knows yeah I love that and, and again I think the way that you describe uh, the approach to the international community is amazing and I also love how much you focus on in real life events too because I, I think we lost a lot and during COVID and pandemic and I think a lot of people assume that almost like IRL's done and they just assume yeah. right and, and, and it's in a big way and yeah. especially in the US like exactly to what you're saying I was at Art Basel in Miami last week and all the fringe events and being able to meet people and there's just so many people who you know descended on there and to be honest the tech element is all fringe mm -hmm. right at that fair so it was super useful on that side and I think people want to if, if building collaboration is about trust it's hard to replace trust building in person with online, right? To build real trust, especially when speed of execution is so important there. Yeah. So I think it's such a, it's a really important one. Okay, one question I have for you is, it sounds like you're so busy, right? It sounds like you've got so many things on the go and, and writing newsletters and, and creating events and festivals and all these things. What does work-life balance mean to you as a young entrepreneur and how's that journey been? What, what are the realities of this? I think um, work-life balance is something I'm so passionate about. I sit on a, a board um, tackling loneliness with the government and with a lot of different organisations who, who care about it. And um, I think one thing about entrepreneurship is it can be very lonely. Mm -hmm. You can have a lot of people around you, but it can be very lonely. And work-life balance speaks into elements of that, in my opinion. Um, a lack of balance is the thing that's going to make you feel like you're go, go, going, but over time when you're waking up in the morning, you're in your own head or you're walking, you're in your own head, kind of mean you're in your own head. Mm -hmm. And um, you need to have things to look forward to, in my opinion. So something I am a big fan of is solo Sundays. Solo so, Sundays. Yeah, okay. so Sundays, no commitment, um, say no to practically 80% of things. Um, and it's just my time to just steam, sauna, walk, take it slow, really reset the body, um, look at my calendar for the next two to four weeks. Are things that I put in there still important? Are they not no, no more important? Um, it's a habit I've I've done for a couple of years now, um, but it's been way more intense in the last two quarters. I've really, really doubled down on it and I really enjoyed it. Um, something I got from a, a friend a couple of years ago, angel investor, he um, has kids, um, married, and he's made a commitment to, to not be out of home more than two times a week, okay. sometimes free. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't have kids yet, I'm not married. But just as a as an approach, because there's always going to be events and things to do, there's always going to be late night shifts. I said to myself, you know what? 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna say to myself like, can I do three to four nights a week, where, like after 8 p.m. I'm home, I'm mm -hmm. indoors, mm -hmm. no laptop, you know. And if I'm not, I'm in a spa, like Stephen Sawring post gym basically. Um, so doing that and tracking that as a journal, I find has been really useful. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing I'm a big fan of when it comes to work-life balance, because it's just a flow, you know, like you're gonna have imbalances at different times when you're when you're chasing things. But I think what I'm talking about here are non-negotiables. You know, the Sundays are non-negotiable. The, okay, three or four nights a week, which are, are mine to just flow. And if I wanna eat late, I'll eat late. If I wanna sleep early, I'll sleep early. If I wanna mm -hmm. steam, I'll steam. Um, and about the final thing I like is self-care for the mandem. So mm -hmm. by that, I mean, going and getting a facial, you know, mani pedicure, you know, sitting down with a nutritionist, going to see a PT, going for a hike, just doing things for my self-care, um, however long it takes. Um, last couple of winters, I've I brought canvases and I'll just mm -hmm. paint and I bring friends nice. that want to come and see me, say, come around, put some music on, we just paint and hang out. So doing stuff like that has really helped um, make sure I don't burn out. I had one burnout when I was 21. I was going to ask, like, when yeah. did you bring this in? Like, what's the yeah, one burnout when I was 21. Um, um, I'd basically worked super hard for seven years, 14 mm -hmm. to 21. All I did was hustle. All I did was work. Um, work or party, but mainly work up until 18 and then work party. And at 21, I was like, you know what? If I can't even get myself up to get to work for three months and I'm just shattered and tired and not really in a mood, I need to make sure I've put things in my life that are not two extremes of mm -hmm. <clears throat> working super hard or partying really hard or working really hard and having to go on holiday for too too long. So finding like every day or every week things that are like replenishment things that mm -hmm. enable you to just be, enable you to play, enable you to remain curious. So I think that for me has become the way that I look after my work-life balance. Um, something that I'm trying to integrate again, and this has kind of got like a, a spiritual context to it, um, but like in the Bible, it talks about having a, a Sabbath day and mm -hmm. there's a lot of, you know, different religions that will teach, talk about a Sabbath. Mm -hmm. um, and I've taken that approach and thought about it in weeks as well. Mm -hmm. So like generally, if you work hard, like stupendous hours for 12 weeks, you're going to burn out at some point. You, you might not call it burnout, but you're, mm -hmm. you're probably not as fresh as you was on week one or two of that sprint you're on, no which is the whole reason that people in tech industry do sprints, you know, two week sprint, four week sprint, six week sprints. So taking an approach of life where actually when you look at your quarter, um, which is four quarters in the year, so in that, what, 12 weeks, having two breaks, because you've got six weeks, six weeks, so split the six weeks, and then after six weeks you have a, a four-day reset or a week reset, and then you go for another six weeks, um, and that four-day or seven-day reset doesn't have to be a big holiday, yeah, but yeah. it could be, right, I'm going to take myself out to yeah. a lodge and hang out, or I'm going to just go see my family and hang out with them for a couple of days, or I'm going to, like, not go gym for that whole week and do a deload week. So taking something off from your intense yeah. non-negotiables that you have to enable your body to just really replenish itself, yeah. I found that that is something that has helped keep the fire stoked and I've been practicing that since April 2022 and that's been really helpful. Yeah. I love that and I think it, it speaks to genuine balance because when I look at my own way of approaching this, it's so extreme. So I do that that sort of three three months, four months at the start of the year, I was like, no alcohol, I'm in bed for 9 p.m. every day, training like two, two maybe three times a day, um, just doing everything, like 500 supplements a day, just like, and then 
as the year tails off, it just descends into like, well, getting getting the other side and just partying too much and everything else, probably because I'm not having that more phased out approach of bringing that balance back in. So um, I think that's great advice. I think it's great advice. All right, I've got five questions I ask every guest. What's the single biggest risk you've ever taken and what was the outcome? Mm. I have ADHD, so that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> I think the single biggest risk has changed at different times in my life. Um, so the single biggest risk I took as an 18 year old was deciding to not go uni, like, mm -hmm. and, you know, going against the parents' wishes, I had all the grades to do it. I went for the first term, didn't tell them I left. I was like, I'm just gonna focus on business. Um, and within a year, I was on newspapers and my mum was like, fair play, you're A-level boss now. <laughs> so that was a, a risk that paid off because I've not had a, a proper job since I was 17. So um, for me, that's been, I'd say, I'd say that was the biggest risk, yeah. Yeah, okay. I was I actually wanted to ask you about if you've ever had a job before as well cuz yeah. same with me. I did a I had a 6-week internship and they made me shave my beard and I was like, right, that's never it. Again. I'm never again. I'm Aww. done. This was back in 2012 or 2011, I guess. I don't know. Um We went to work at a similar time. I was working in 2012 at Selfridges. Okay. Um working in retail. I loved it. I was like I got rejected for a long time at um Top Man, Uniqlo, all a bunch of places. I was like, oh, maybe I'm not good enough. Mm. Went to Selfridges, loved it, um, and it, I think I think everyone needs to have have a job underneath their belt at some point, um, especially if you're going to lead people, um, or at least have really good coaches around you. Yeah, because there's a lot of people who run scale ups who have never understood what it's like to be on the other side because mm -hmm. they started that young. Because we've all grown up with Zuckerberg and all of these different mm -hmm. things in our in our in our faces. It's been cool, right, to be an entrepreneur. A hundred percent. And I think from like a cultural perspective, probably the biggest thing that I learned about the cultures that I wanted to build was I needed to build the opposite of the place that I was in. Mm -hmm. It was literally one of those places where Sunday night would come and it was like existential dread about having to go back to that place and work in that environment with those things. So a hundred percent only by seeing like the total other end of like somewhere which would never... Uh, I would never work with someone like that. Yeah. And that's it. And you know, you appreciate where it's like, okay, if I want to hire the best and people who I enjoy working with who are like ambitious, young, interesting people, you have to create the environment for them. So I completely agree. Sometimes you've got to see through the eye of the needle to understand what's on the other side. Yeah. Um, okay, my next question for you is, what are you proudest of? Um, I think I'm most proudest of... Um, my ability to to find solutions in the midst of yeah being up against it um, for myself and my family. Um, I've yeah been independent since I was a teenager, and um, it's been and by independent I'm talking about independent from parental support. Um, so it's been it's been a real pleasure to be able to be of of help and aid to family um, throughout the years whenever needed to friends. Um, and that's just having a solution mindset. So my mm -hmm. solution mindset is something that I'm super proud that I'm, I'm always cultivating. Um, so I'm the kind of friend people call when they need something fixed. And even if it's not a financial thing, I think people should, can count on me to to help you get through a rut. So people call me, BJ, I, I need to move out of this house. My boyfriend, when I broke up, I'm like, right, here's a delivery business, here's a storage business. Nice. But it could also be, BJ, I've just graduated and I'm thinking about these two different jobs. Like, right, cool, let's do a little framework. Let's weigh up. Where do you want to be? Let's work backwards. Mm. You know, so just taking that approach. And 
I've been fortunate that's how people work with me. So I kind of like push it with other people as well. Just having a solution mindset because it just leads to a lot less anxiety. Mm-hmm. I'm all about reducing anxiety for me and my loved ones. Yeah, I think that's an amazing approach. And you're right. The, the, one of the best cures for anxiety is proactiveness. And it's and I think as well, like uh, if if you're someone in people's lives who could help them break things down in that way, like, right, we're anxious about this big thing, but this is what it looks like. It's an amazing skill to have. And I, but I also think it's ADHD thing, right? Because the ADHD brain task focused dopamine, mm-hmm. right? So in those high stress situations, that's where people with ADHD come to life. Yeah. And it's like normally like high stress situation, I don't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. Most people's brains are all over the place, but that's why entrepreneurs and ADHD go so hand in hand because it's like this super stressful situation where everything would be panic. It's like, well, that's actually just chemically when we go into focus. Yeah. So I, I think it's uh, it's definitely one of the, the useful parts of ADHD. Absolutely. We didn't talk about your ADHD journey as much, but what, 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 what was that? When did you, you know, get diagnosed? What does it all look like? Yeah, so um, yeah, I don't really talk about this on podcasts, to be honest, because it's just an everyday thing. Um, I think it's become cool to be neurodivergent a little bit online now. Um, or maybe just stories are being told. So I don't know where I sit with on that on that line. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been a, a fan and a big believer that everyone has something going on. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to tell a story to kind of like enable others to kind of like see that you're just as you're just like them. Um, but I'm also off the cadence of I don't I don't want to give excuses. I just want to crack on. And if I need to improve, let me improve. If I'm letting you down somewhere, let me come back and help and fix it, kind of thing. Um, because I don't want to label myself and then people be like, oh, he can't do that because of mm-hmm. you know. Um, because you know, there is no lifeline of defense in entrepreneurship, unfortunately. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> Do you know? So I think for me, uh, yeah, um, diagnosis was quite early. Um, when I was about seven or eight years old, I um, had a stammer. Um, and through that, I was on SCN. So mm-hmm. there was a bunch of different learning difficulties that was identified uh, for me. Um, and I'm able to speak properly now, no stammer. In so far, so far, Amazing. so good. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I um, yeah had a bunch of um, therapists who would help me make sure that I was getting my work done, um, and also kind of like look after behavioural, um, kind of like it's a behavioural disorder, right? So mm-hmm. I could always be in trouble, like class clown, suspension, isolation unit. But if people just work with me on a plan, I tend to kind of do good rather than having medication. Um, my whole thing is like I need to see what we're doing, like where, where's this all going. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'll check out. So I was like that from kid from from school early, and as soon as I was able to sit down and go, okay, I could be this, could be that, could be this. I, was, I tended to kind of like move on. Yeah. But I know obviously other people have a lot of different levels of um, diagnosis, and I actually think long term, what I've learned um, from my other friends who have ADHD and have different forms of OCD and bipolar disorder and all kinds of stuff is um, just the pain people go through when they're, when they're not diagnosed 100%. and just not knowing and not being able to kind of put stuff through. And also the pain of um, having parents who may have immigrated to the country who don't want to label their children. Mm-hmm. So that's also been a conversation I've had a lot more now because, um, yeah, my mum didn't want me to be asthma or ADHD or any labels like mm-hmm. he's a cool kid he can do it he's mm-hmm. gonna just he'll, like he just needs to do his homework and he'll be fine um, but actually 
you give being given that grace of you know a bit extra time in the exam because your mind might wander for the first 10 mm-hmm. minutes um all of these things are so helpful um because we know we can do a lot of things really fast under time pressure but um i think it's important for people to understand nuances um yeah and who you are yeah, that's an amazing answer. Thank you for sharing that. And I think you're so right on the diagnosis bit. Like, I look at my dad, who was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD at like 55 years old, but dropped out of school at 15 because he couldn't do it. It was, you know, bus driver for years because he thought it was stupid, right? Because mm. that was the understanding back then. So um, I think that's so true. And also, uh, you're right about everyone's got something going on. Who's this neurotypical person? Right, that's what I understand. Like, who's ground zero, which everyone else is divergent from? No one's neurotypical, right? Yeah. Everyone's got stuff going on. No one, no two brains work exactly the same. Yeah. Um, but I think it's that. It's, underst- it's just, uh, I think that the beauty of the diagnosis is it allows you to then understand a bit more about your own brain and how you work best and, you know, the best ways of getting things out of yourself. But I agree that capitalism doesn't care. Right at the end of the day, capitalism doesn't really care about yeah. your neurodivergence, and ultimately, on the entrepreneurial side, it's about can you make things happen regardless of all the things that you're dealing with. So, yes, yeah, really, really interesting thoughts there. Um, okay, my next question for you is: What does it take to be successful? What does it take to be successful? Consistency, consistency is a it's a real big thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna put out there from the start. I think clarity. Um, if you're chasing everything and there's no clarity on why you're chasing the thing, you can be consistent as you want, but that's going to not be a great a great mix. You're definitely going to fall back. Um, and then I think if you've got clarity and consistency, patience. You know, you might be working a plan, the market might not be ready. And... Um, I say often right now, like there's some friendships I have where it's taken seven years for us to make money mm-hmm. together. Patience. It's taken four years for us to collaborate or taken six months for this deal to be done. Um, one of the biggest deals I did um, as a teenager, my first six-figure check, it took um, 12 months. No, not 12 months, 12 weeks mm-hmm. of conversation where you don't know where it's going. Um, and that's off the back of another 12 weeks that came before that. So it felt like 12 months, but it was six months of like meeting people and trying to be introduced so you know so many people will quit in that in that six months um and that was not my first rodeo Mm. so patience is a key element for success in my opinion and then i'll say the final thing um and i'm talking success as an entrepreneur success in business here i'm not just saying success in life because that's a that's a quandrum i'm still answering myself Mm -hmm. and a lot of us are answering but in business i'd say um having a great product or a great service like that focus on customer that we spoke about earlier in the podcast, that focus on community, like all of that it stems from having a really, really, really good, excuse my French, shit hot product or service. You need something that is clean, that works, that says what it says on a tin, or at least has a pathway that people can buy into. Um, you can have consistency, you can have clarity, you can have patience, but if you're trying to sell snake oil, no one's gonna buy into it long term. I think that would be my my potion mix. Um, those four things um, to be prioritized. Um, we can obviously make longer lists, but I think really good product or service, a bit of patience, make some consistent movement on the clarity of the pathway you've made. Um, and I, I definitely think elements of success will be had 
um, whether it's fully successful to what you really want to realize in your dream, ultimately the market decides. Mm -hmm. And there's other factors that you can't control, but those are factors you can control. Love that. Great answer. All right. Is there anything you wish you did differently? Probably... The only thing I wish I did... Like, I, I don't regret anything in my life. Everything's been there for a reason. Mm -hmm. The only thing you can ever wish that you did differently is take your health more seriously. Um, I'm very healthy. I'm not ill. I'm blessed. I'm happy. Um, but, you know, we're, we're blessed with two arms and two legs right now. You know, we're sat here in our, our best shapes of our lives. Um, I think it's it's a beautiful thing to kind of get yourself in the best shape mentally, physically, spiritually. And um, every year I get smarter and more connected with myself. And I just wish I started that journey mm. a lot more earlier. But um, I believe, you know, we're going to be here for a while. Um, and sometimes I don't. So you can't beat yourself up on the future or the past. You have to just take the information you know now and be the best version of you. So it's kind of a double-edged double, double -edged answer. What, a very big part of my answer is, hell no, there's nothing mm -hmm. I wish I changed. But from a philosophical perspective, I'm like, ooh, could I have had more ginger shots? Can I sunbathe <laughs> more? Could I have been steaming sauna more? Could yeah. I have, you know, done a bit more yoga, osteotherapy, mm -hmm. worked on my lower back? You know, all of these little things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. How about yeah. you? Um, yeah, I mean, very much the same. Uh, there's There are, I mean... The reason we both sit here today is a culmination of every single thing that we've done in our lives, good and bad, right? Yeah. And I'm very happy with where I sit today, so I wouldn't change anything. But there's definitely like people I wish I treated better. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, like maybe I was a lot more ruthless. Maybe I was a lot more like, I didn't really, th for various reasons and upbringing and everything else, maybe I didn't have enough empathy when I was younger at times. I wish I had more of that. Um, wish I'd been looking after myself from a younger age as well. Uh, I also wish I had done mushrooms more more regularly when I was younger as well. Like I feel yeah, like that's yeah. a, a been a really really big part of. Um, I know I know Kobe's laughing. It's a, a crazy answer, but it's true. It's true. It's got to be authentic um, because so much of like my growth on like a spiritual level, gratitude, compassion, empathy, all of those things have been linked through that. And now, you know, a regular part of my growth. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's that, right? Wishing I brought in some of this best practice stuff earlier on. Yeah. Um, but also, yeah, for sure, there's there's people in my life I could have treated better, definitely. Um, all right, my last question for you is, 15-year-old BJ walks in the room right now. What are you going to tell him? You got it, kid. I was that 15-year-old with a business card, walking in, giving it to people, um, networking to people, like, yeah, thinking I was going to do something in life. And, um, yeah, I've done all right. Life's been good. So I just told I just told myself you got it. Like not that I never thought I didn't have it, but at that time there was a lot of unknowns in the future because there wasn't a lot of people in my family who had achieved um things in Britain the mm -hmm. way I wanted to achieve it. Um so it was like you we were racing to be eighteen so you can be an adult, so you can just really try things properly. Mm -hmm. Um and you just couldn't tell the future. Like 15 year old, like the world is very different when I was 15. You know, the amount of tech and stuff we have access to now is just ridiculous. So um, 15 year old, if I was 15 right now, it would be a scary time for the world because I'd be on everything. I'll be, too many people have won for us not to all win together, you know? Mm. It would be my vibe. So yeah, 15 year old Beach, the only thing I'm saying to you is like, it's, it's, it's all up, it's up, it's all up for play, it's all up for all, everything you you can imagine you can go and do if you put your mind to it. Love that. All right, BJ, where can people find you? 
Um, so you can find the show, Blocks of Bags, and the community of entrepreneurs um, who are meeting up and doing events and networking um, on Blocks Number Two and Bags dot com. It connects you to everything, and it's the same with Instagram. Um, so if you want business stuff and tips from me, I always send people there. If you want to support the education stuff, um, misinformation, youth club, supporting young people, that's the student view, the student view. And um, yeah, me as a as an individual, if you just want to see my ramblings on the internet, um, then you just type the name of this podcast, grab my name and uh, search it on YouTube, Google, LinkedIn, and you'll find me um, and just say Roy sent you and um, I'll make sure to connect with you. Legend. Thank you so much. Thanks for watching the episode. And if you haven't subscribed, please hit subscribe below so that you can support the podcast and we can keep on bringing you amazing new guests. If you want to see the other amazing episodes in this podcast, click into our series section. As ever, if there are any other guests or topics you want us to explore, just let me know in the comments and we'll do our best to bring someone in.